I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast, brought to you from the John MacLeod Annual Lecture at the RHS Lindley Hall in London. These lectures have been held every autumn since 2011, and this year Professor Stephen Blackmore, CBE, speaks on gardening planet Earth, sustainable horticulture, and how each of us can make a difference. Stephen is a botanist and former Regis Keeper of the Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh. He was appointed Her Majesty's Botanist in Scotland in 2010 and since 2014 he has also been Chairman of Botanic Gardens Conservation International. And now over to Professor Blackmore in the Lindley Hall. Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen. It all went suddenly very quiet. You were all terribly well behaved as an audience because we thought it would take about 10 minutes to get everybody seated and you all went down in 30 seconds. So congratulations on being a wonderfully well-behaved audience. So my name's Sue Biggs, and I'm not Dr. Alistair Griffiths. I'm <laughs> Director General of the RHS, and it's great to welcome so many of you here this evening, afternoon-y, afternoon evening. Um, and for those of you who were here last year, I hope you like the improvement in the horticulture and everything around us. So a uh, big welcome from all of us, from everyone at the RHS, and from the Science Committee too, many of whom are in the audience, and that's chaired by Peter Gregory. Oh, I haven't seen Peter yet, so he's not able to be here. Um, oh, he's in Australia, that's a good excuse. Yeah, that's a good enough excuse to not be here tonight. So what today is all about, as you can see, I think, from everything all around us, is two, two major items, really, and one is to welcome everyone and thank Professor Stephen Blackmore, who I can't see below the lights, right in front of me, who's going to be he's kindly honoured us by giving this year's John McLeod Lecture. So you'll be hearing more about Gardening Planet Earth very, very shortly. But we're also going to be hearing from Alistair about the science strategy for the RHS, the next five-year strategy. And for many of you, some of whom I know were here last Thursday... Uh, this is a time of great change, of exciting change at the RHS. And what you're going to hear on the science strategy and on gardening planet Earth is totally, thankfully, totally aligned with everything that we're doing as part of our vision and our strategic investment programme. So for those of you that were here, you'll know that as part of that vision to enrich people's lives through plants and make the UK a greener and more beautiful place... We're also really trying to move forward 
and make science a part of our whole world. Science has always been at the RHS, but one of the things that I think Alistair, so I'll make him blush before he stands up here, but one of the things I think that Alistair and his team, many of whom are here tonight, they have, I think, transformed themselves in recent years and created a science strategy that is easy to understand for those of us who never got beyond biology O-level, have started really being able to communicate it so easily to everybody within the RHS, within the horticultural world and beyond, and to start a major outward-looking collaboration between us, other organisations, other universities, Q, East Malling, all the different bodies that we work with now. So it is a tremendous time of change, and as part of the vision where we are investing over £100 million in 10 projects, one of the major projects is the investment in an amazing new building at Wisley. Now, bricks and mortar are very exciting, maybe. What goes in it is even more exciting. And that really will be the first UK-dedicated scientific research centre into cultivated plants. And whether we're talking about the plant health, the taxonomy, horticultural science altogether, this is really important that we invest in that and that we take care of the future of science for cultivated plants. So nothing of those projects can exceed the importance of science because if we don't do that scientific research and we don't have such great scientists as we do have, we won't be able to deliver the right advice to gardeners in this country. We won't be able to help with plant pests and diseases and all of the other challenging climate change issues we have and so on and so on that you're all very well aware of. So uh, I'd like to thank Stephen again for coming to give us this lecture but before that happens it's, I'm going to hand over to Alistair who's really going to now be able to tell you in the next half hour uh, all about our science strategy and what a difference that's going to make to the world of the RHS, to the world of horticulture, and to our environment. So over to you, Alistair. All yours. Thank you very much, Sue, um, and welcome, everyone. Uh, one of the things that I first wanted to do is to thank all the, I think it's almost maybe hundreds of people that helped me um, develop the science strategy, some of which I went, oh, really, do I have to do that? But actually it made it better. So the science committee, the horticultural board, and, and members of council supported, and external collaborators also inputted into that. I even tw tweeted it at one point, what do you want in the science strategy? And, and got some really good comments, which I've incorporated in, it in. Because I, I strongly believe it's important for UK horticulture particularly ornamental horticulture and cultivated plants, which is often the last, the last part to be funded in research um, that has a serious focus on it um, to help benefit um, the future. So why does it matter? First of all, I want to talk about why it matters, um, why this strategy matters. Well, the ornamental industry is worth £10.4 billion to this country per annum. So there's a serious economic benefit for it. But we also have a nation of gardeners who love gardening. 
they are estimated to be 22.5 million gardens in the UK. That's excluding communities and green space. And there are 27 million active gardeners in England alone. So that's a huge force for good. And it's very important that we you know, nurture these nations of gardeners and, and have two-way conversations. It's not about us preaching what we know. It's about having those conversations to make things better. So the previous slide you saw was about the number of gardens. And that was Greater London. It was talking about half the green space being domestic garden. But the other really serious message, this was um, the former chief scientist, um, Professor John Bennington, talked about the perfect storm, that we really are facing a crisis. It really is a challenge for us. We're already seeing extreme weather conditions. We're already seeing challenges. Resources are depleting. I could go on and on and on, but I'm not going to depress you this evening. But we really need to be serious and think about how we're going to deal with the challenges of now that we face and the challenges of the future. If we don't start to use the tools that we have and we don't start to think and do the science that we need to understand better our planet and understand better cultivated plants, then we'll be in a much worse place than we would be if we don't fulfill this, this element of strategy. So, for example, the, the fact that um, food is, is the obvious one, but in relation to ornamental plants, there will be an increased demand on energy. There will be an increased demand on water. And plants need quite a bit of water in relation to that. Furthermore, there is a significant population increase within uh, the, the global world. And, and on that, 75% of people will be living in urban environments in the future. So we have a high percentage of people living in these urban environments, which causes pressure and challenges on demands for resources, on demands for water, and therefore, again, horticulture, I think, can provide part of the solution. It's not the full solution, but part of the solution. And this, again, is why I feel this strategy matters. Now, health and well-being. Parks and gardens are having um, their, their budgets cut. Yet actually, the third biggest problem, uh, number two is terrorism, number one is smoking, is obesity in the, on this planet. Yet we know that the green spaces that we have and the parks and gardens we have encourage people to do activity. One in four people have suffered or are suffering now with mental health issues. And there is an increasing body of evidence linked to nature and actually active nature. Now, if many of you are gardeners, which I suspect you are, if I've had a stressful day, what I will do is go in the garden and I'll feel much better. However, that's just anecdotal, but it isn't because there is so much evidence now building up to show that this is the case, that actually being in nature helps with, with those issues, but also, more importantly, giving life, which is only two words. One is, one is having a son or a daughter. The other is growing a plant. Giving life is very rewarding and very restorative. And we want to look at the strategy and use more elements on that. But pollution, there are areas within many cities that are not meeting their pollution targets. And again, part of the solution um, is, is use of, of plants and cultivated in green spaces. Safeguarding UK's plant health. Now, this is a, a graph showing the increase 
of interceptions of new pests and diseases. I think in the last three or four months, since we've had new skills brought on board with Gerard Clover and Matthew Cromie, they're discovering more pests and diseases as our, as our skill sets get better. But, you know, ash dieback, um, the, the Phytophthora morums and other Phytophthora species, the uh, oak processionary moth, all of these are costing financial money and you know, within the cultivator world, we've, we've just discovered an ag agapanthus midge. We still don't know what it is. So the science is working on that. But these increasing pressures and this increasing challenge of how we diagnose and manage those, those effectively will need science to help to find those solutions. Supporting biodiversity. More and more evidence, including the paper that we published recently in the Journal of Applied Ecology, has saying that gardens play a strong role and commitment into supporting biodiversity. And with increasing green space um, at threat and, and with areas being reduced in time, then we need to look at ways of preserving the natural world, but also looking at how we use gardens more cleverly and use cultivated plants more cleverly to encourage biodiversity and the connectivity. And when I applied for the job as Director of Science, there were several others, one of them's in this room, who was my lecturer, but there were also a very small other number of people, and I knew most of them. And that's quite sad. When the Director of Horticulture applied for his job, all, probably four of the five, phoned me up and said, do you think I should go for the job? All of them went to the university that, well, most of them went to the university I went to, which was Reading University. Unfortunately, although there are good, strong plant scientists within there, the botany degrees have disappeared. The horticultural science focused on ornamental plants, although there are still some good strongholds in this country, are decreasing. And therefore, where is the future Alistair Griffiths? Not like me, it'll be someone different who can deal with the challenges. But where, where are these future people going to come from? And if we don't create those people, they won't be banging on like I am here about how important horticultural science is because they won't even know what it is. So it's really important that as part of what we do is we train um, the scientists in PhDs, MSCs, fellowships in relation to that. Now linking into the science strategy, one of the other bits of thinking that we did is made sure it absolutely tied in with the RHS vision but also working with industry on the ornamental roundtable to make sure that our research aligns with what industry wants and what, what industry needs. Uh, similar with the horticultural matters, it needed to tie in to make sure that it delivered the very best it could with what we have in relation to our resources of, of our science and, and our team and also how we collaborate with others in the UK to make sure that happens. So we strongly align with that. Now, the science strategy has four key themes. One is the global knowledge bank of gardening and garden plants. There are between, depending on what, which paper you read, 250,000 and 400,000 flowering plants in the world. We estimate at the RHS there are 400,000 cultivated plants in this country, which is a phenomenal amount of cultivated plants. So we're going to start a journey, and it will only be a start of a journey, in creating the UK garden flora. And that will link to our new building and link to creating a reference collection of a UK garden flora to look at um, that collect document to help us better conserve and share and gather knowledge. 
The other thing is we're training um, a monographer who will compile one group of plants uh, and look at that, that group of plants in much detail in taxonomy and in the relation and the identification of those plants. And training new monographers and getting other monographers, older people, to come and train those people is critical to keep and maintain that skill set because it's the plant name that is the key that unlocks the treasure trove to knowing what that plant gives us, what plants we need to conserve. So it's that, that monographer is a key role. And then the herbarium, uh, we, we are in the process of digitizing, but we're looking at digitizing those areas. So the second one is plant health in gardens, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. The third one is gardening in a changing world, and the fourth one is plant science for all. So the Global Knowledge Bank of Gardening and Garden Plants, we want to maintain and build on the plant finder, which currently has 70,000 plant names in it, and we want to provide that single source of authority on naming and classification. We also have nine international registers as well. We want to make sure that we gather and we share and we collaborate and have two-way conversations to promote those best gardening practices and conserve. And we want to improve identification skills um, for, for, for the, as many people as possible so that they can better grow and nurture these plants. With regards to plant health in gardens, we're the only organisation in this country that actually has gardeners sending us pests and diseases. Um, so we've got a good understanding of what the top 10 pests and diseases are, and we've got a good understanding when new pests and diseases are hitting gardens and coming in. But we want to improve on, on that in relation to how we monitor plant pests and diseases and how we look at biosecurity and managing biosecurity, providing tools for gardeners to deal with issues such as outbreak, pest outbreaks. So improving that detection is key. The RHS has spent a lot of time in the past, I think as a UK horticulture, looking at diagnostics, um, perhaps more when I say horticulture, horticulture in the landscape rather than in production because there's been a lot of work on pests and diseases in production and long may that continue. But within landscapes, what tends to happen is some of these pests get out into the landscapes and then we have to look at how we control these things and we need to get a bit more proactive in what we're doing. That's not gonna help with the unknown unknowns but it will help us build resilience within, within that, that control and management strategy. And we'll concentrate also on the common pests uh, and diseases such as slugs. And we want to develop an integrated garden management, um, pest sort of management process so that we can get a holistic approach to healthy gardens. Linked to the perfect for pollinators, we want to look at how best we can use plants, maintain the beauty, but also allow us to encourage more biodiversity and be better stewards of nature in the gardens. Now I mentioned those 400,000 plants and for a long time those plants have been perceived in the main for their amazing beauty and their aesthetic quality which is very important and we'll never lose that because it's ingrained within our culture. However, the research is needed around ecosystem services, the service of those function of plants beyond that prettiness, remaining pretty, but also being good for pollinators, also being good for reduction of particulate pollution, also being good at reducing noise, 
and on and on and on, to add value to the quality of plants, to raise the value of those plants, and to make sure that we do that. Now, the base of that is about good taxonomy and understanding the plants that we have. But also it's about researching the different cultivars. If you look in the agricultural world, we started with wheat sort of this, this height, and then we bred down there. Well, we're in this world with the cultivated plant, which is a very exciting time. And I think we need to look at what plants we have and, and then focus on what, which ones and what benefits we can give. So by advancing those systems and similar with gardens, we're going to help to increase that role of plants in gardens. Linking back to um, the perfect storm, growing medias, materials, people, water, energy, are all going to be resources that we're going to be look at and be clever with. So technology, systems, how we grow better, are all going to be key challenges that we need to look at in relation to manage that. And a good example at the moment is the Greening Grey Britain campaign where people are paving over their front gardens. And actual fact, what that does is have water, surface water runoff, which creates issues for water utility boards, for governments, for sewage issues. Yet, so what kind of plants do we need that can capture more rainfall than other cultivars of plants? What kind of soils do we need to put in so that we have percolation rates that are slower than, than others? What kind of plants do we choose that we can park over or park on so you can park and plant? And these are questions that really not very many people would probably want to do, but the RHS should be doing and, and have a cumulative real benefit to society. And there is an increasing body of evidence around plants for health and well-being. Um, and we need to look more into that. There's quite a lot of evidence there. We're going to hold a conference next year at Hampton Court looking at health and well-being um, with a collective group bringing the collective horticultural people together who are already doing this work so that we can have a common voice to make a, make a difference and have our voice heard so that we can better understand how to provide tools or how to develop some of these things. And then we want to inspire and inform people about the importance of plants and gardens. Now, rocket science for me is not a scientific experiment. It's been done before. It's about getting a huge number of school children germinating a rocket seed. It's about school children doing science with plants, understanding the rigour of methodologies, blind experiments. There may be something that comes out of it. There probably won't be in relation to the, the sort of end hypothesis. But how many of you, and certainly my son is still getting a lamp and pointed at a camboba and looking at how many bubbles come out of it, what would you rather do in science to get you inspired? Would you rather be looking at a lamp with a bit of pondweed or would you be involved in an experiment that seeds have gone up to space station and an astronaut is telling you what you can do? If we want to inspire those new scientists, we need to communicate that science is exciting. And the LED lighting that is used in horticulture for energy use now, that started off in space, that technology started off in space, and we addressed that. So I think, you know, often just engaging people at a level of, of excitement in science that first moment when you think back to your, when you first got engaged in science, mine was catching my first frog, that natural history stuff is really important. 
and we need to engage more people in that. So I want to involve all people of ages, but also through our advice, we want to make sure that we continue to provide the very best advice for gardeners. But that, that has always been a two-way conversation. People are on telephones, and my advisory team are just phenomenal, but we need to improve how we do that. We need to look at how we can create um, a kind of YouTube world of, of advisory, but also maintaining those two-way conversations to ensure um, that, we, that we, we do those conversations. Two, just over two years ago, I inherited the most amazing scientific collections, and last year I inherited the Lind Library. Yet none of that is really open or accessible to the public or to schools or to children. And so we're going to work really hard on digitising that collection, but also curating it and making exhibits and telling stories with our collections so that these hidden treasures, these amazing treasures, can be shared with a much wider um, group of people for research, but also to tell stories um, that are relevant for today. I mean, we, 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 we dug back just recently, and there are, there's a whole... A book on plants and pollution. So let's look back at history and make sure that we're not missing a trick in relation to what things are doing. And we've got this wealth. The library is just next door. Please do go along if you haven't been. It's amazing. But we also have 23,000 insects collections, which we could use for teaching. We've got um, live diseases, um, which um, we use for research uh, and identification. And we've got 80,000 herbarium specimens. They're small in number, but they're very unique in that they're purely focused on cultivated plants and garden plants. So, and finally, for me, I think making sure that science is accessible for as wide an audience as possible, not to dumb it down, not to undermine it, but to make sure that people are excited by science, that they understand that it is very important in relation to delivering the issues of the environment, delivering the issues of health, delivering the issues of well-being. In fact, it delivers a number of issues across all government policy areas, which is why horticulture often ch is challenged about who to go to to get solutions to certain problems. And for me, this building has, um, will take us out of um, an infrastructure which our science team is doing amazing, which is almost in a Dickensian world, to a much more 21st century building, but also right in the centre of it and all around it will be gardens that and a public engagement space and that will share the, the knowledge and, and create a hub of activity around horticulture and the excitement of horticulture and horticultural science. Because it really does matter. Now, there's no way the RHS is going to do this alone. Absolutely no way. And that's why I think collaboration is going to be key and we already do work with a number of organizations but we will continue to work with other organizations um, to help to deliver that and I think that is important the whole of UK horticulture and horticultural science particularly around gardening plants and cultivated plants needs to get stronger and I believe that this will be a good hub for that it'll be a first center that is focused purely on that and nothing else um, so for me, of course it would be, it's a really exciting time for the RHS, but I also think it's a really exciting time for UK horticulture. So that's why it matters, and that's what the RHS science strategy is about. It's highly ambitious, 
and uh, I've deliberately done that and we will need partners and we will we'll work on delivering those and it's a long journey this is the start of many many years of getting to where we are developing our scientists creating the future and making a better place for for UK thank you Right, I'm now, um, it is a bit of a small world, the horticultural world. Now, when I did my degree at Reading University, Stephen probably doesn't remember this, but he, he actually did my viva for my degree. And I was terrified because, I mean, he's such an eminent scientist and still is a very eminent scientist. But he's passionate about conservation. Um, he's now the chairman of Botanical Garden Conservation International and UK's Darwin Initiative. He's the former Regius Keeper of the Royal Botanic Gardens, Edinburgh, which is one of my most favourite gardens. It's an amazing garden. And we also crossed paths, because I did some work in the Seychelles, and uh, Stephen's part, he, he, I don't know how he did it, but he spent quite a number of, number of years on Aldarba on his own, maybe with other people, on the Seychelles Island, but pretty beautiful, quite lonely. Um, he was doing science art. And then his career has really been on biodiversity, plant systematics, and promoting the importance of plants. He was an author of Global Strategy for Plant Conservation, and he's the, the, the Majesty's Botanist of Scotland. So it's a very impressive speaker we've got tonight, and thank you very much. And uh, he's going to talk to us on gardening planet Earth, sustainable horticulture. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Actually, I did remember that, Alistair. And you did all right. And look what you've gone on to do. That's the main thing. I'd like to start by really congratulating the RHS on this new science strategy. I was fortunate to read an advanced copy of it and see what you were going to be saying. But I have to tell you, I mean, if you think I'm a terrifying person, which anyone who really knows me, I'm not, but I can be quite a bossy person... If I'd been able to boss the RHS around and say, please, will you make your science strategy look like this? This is what it would have looked like. And it had absolutely no input whatsoever from me. I think what you've succeeded in doing is being absolutely in tune with some of the very biggest issues that are in, of importance in the world today. And I'm going to try and talk about those issues myself. And um, I'll be doing that in many ways, touching on themes that, that Sue and Alistair have already mentioned. And uh, so perhaps this is going to be a rerun of parts of your talk, Alistair, but with a personal spin on it. So, um, first of all, it's a very great honour to be invited to give this talk. I think that the RHS's John McLeod lecture is a really important date in the calendar and, uh, and, a, and a good thing to be involved in. So I was, I was very pleased to be invited to give it, and, and thank you very much for the invitation. Here's a picture of John. Those of you who remember him, he's easily recognised, I think, by his smile, but also his McLeod tartan tie is a bit of a giveaway as well. And there he was at Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh in 2003 as a member of a peer review of our science in the garden. 
What happens when you take photographs of distinguished groups like this is that they find the only bit of tarmac you're digging up in the whole garden to stand on for the group photograph. So it's not the best impression of the garden, but you can see in the background that we had some nice things growing. What I'm going to do is got four parts to it, and what I hope by the end of my talk is to have done is to persuade of you, first of all, that all the world's a garden, and it's possible, appropriate, and indeed urgent that we begin to think about gardening on a global scale. Secondly, I believe that on our increasingly crowded planet, gardeners are the people who have an increasing part to play in securing a worthwhile future for us and on keeping the planet green. I'm going to come on to look at how organizations and gardens are providing the focus and leadership for efforts leading us into the future. And we've had a perfect introduction to that in terms of the RHS science strategy already. It's very much what that's about. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, I'll try and turn to considering what each of us can do individually to make a difference through our own choices and actions. And I think you'll see during this talk that I don't believe that we should wait and see what the future turns out to be like. I think we should work hard to create the future we would want and wish upon ourselves. First, though, let's remind ourselves that the world we're living in was shaped and created by plants. It was photosynthesis, initially in blue-green algae in the oceans, which created the oxygen-rich, breathable atmosphere that allowed large animals, like ourselves, to evolve and allowed life to come out of the oceans and onto land. I like to think I just managed three billion years of history in a single sentence. That's not bad. And here is a close-up of the White Cliffs of Dover. What you see in the scanning electron microscope is the microscopic fossil remains of coccoliths. Plantonic algae that in their billions built up more than 100 feet of chalk during the Cretaceous period. That chalk cliff visible from France gives us a measure of the scale and impact of even the most microscopic of plants over long periods of time, millions of years. And a theme I'll return to quite a lot in this talk is that lots of small things small actions, small changes, small coccoliths, add up to big effects and big changes. So I'll return to that point. I like to think of photosynthesis happening in the oceans, in algae, in the leaves of land plants like this yew tree that you see behind me. Is the everyday miracle that supports life on earth. When you think about it, our planet is literally powered by plants, using energy from the sunlight, two of the most abundant raw materials, water and carbon dioxide, combined together to create carbohydrates and sugar. Or as we might think of it, carbohydrates and sugar, I meant carbohydrates and oxygen, creating our food and the air we breathe. That's quite a job, and without it, where would we be? 
So let's remember that on our planet we wouldn't be here at all if plants hadn't created and shaped a world that could support us, or if their silent work did not continue to feed us and to replenish the air we breathe in the background. And as a great hero of mine, Patrick Geddes, said, and I think he put it much better and more eloquently than I've ever seen written, in 1919, he said, How many people think twice about a leaf? Yet the leaf is the chief product and phenomenon of life. This is a green world, with animals comparatively few and small, and all dependent on the leaves. I think he got that right. And we have much to thank plants for. But tens of thousands of years ago, we humans had already begun to reshape the world, changing it to meet our needs and purposes. We had already cleared half of the world's forests even before the Industrial Revolution started in Europe. And today, only a small proportion remains, for example, of the world's lowland tropical rainforests, places like this in Honduras, where I was lucky to collect plants in the early 1980s. But not just in the tropics, everywhere we see nature on the retreat, and forests in particular. And it's often said that the forests are the lungs of the world. And if that's so, then we actually lost one lung a couple of hundred years ago. And we probably all know medical terms. You can live without a lung, but you can't describe yourself as healthy. And when you think about our planet in those terms, you begin to see that our planet has been struggling along under our weight for quite a long time. This chart, which is really the only graph or technical-looking thing in this talk, comes from Earl Ellis, an American scientist, um, who has set out a diagram which shows the extent and changes of our impact on planet Earth. Um, the way this chart works is from the left-hand side, it starts at 6,000 BC, so quite a long period after we'd already started settled farming and agriculture. And from then on, you see a steady reduction in that brighter or darker green colour, which represents semi-natural, sorry, natural landscapes, wild lands of various kinds. And taking their place instead in the lighter green underneath is the modified landscapes, semi-natural landscapes, which we're much more familiar with today. The white line that I've overlaid over the top of his chart is a rough attempt to show the dramatic expansion of human numbers against that background. We passed one billion people in the early 1800s. And if you find that, I'm sorry, I haven't a pointer, but um, in between 1750 and 1900, that's the point, the turning point at one billion of us, when things really began to change. And you see a huge increase in the proportion colored in red, which is urban development, in yellow, which is the world's uh, croplands, and in orange, which is land for the grazing of livestock and the production of meat. What I like about this chart, then, is how much it summarizes the impact of human history on the nature of planet Earth. And if you look at the population line, and Alistair touched on this earlier, we're already more than 7 billion of us, but... Current projections suggest there could even be 10 billion people by the middle of the present century. Huge growth in our numbers. 
we already place a huge burden on the natural productivity of planet Earth, and many people go unfed even today. We're going to place incredibly heavy demands on this planet in the next few decades. And of course, as a result, we face many uncertainties. In fact, that's a complete understatement. And again, it's a good reason why in the science strategy we heard about, there's a strong focus on the plants for the future. Today, there's really nowhere left on our planet that escapes our influence. Alistair mentioned that, uh, I perhaps should have said welcome to all of those other Reading people who are here in large numbers today. But when I left Reading University equipped with my shiny new degree in botany, there weren't any jobs going, except I got sentenced to a year on a tropical island. So the place that's remote that I know really well is Aldabra Atoll in the Western Indian Ocean. Wonderful place. But even there, you can see our impact. Huge amounts of plastic waste wash up on the shore with every tide. The whole place is actually now threatened by rising sea levels and fabulous animals like the giant tortoises and the flightless rail are, are threatened. My point, I suppose, is that nowhere is so far away that it's completely safe from our influence. And it's our domination of the planet that makes me consider it appropriate to think of Earth as a garden planet, a place where nature now relies on us and we can't simply rely on nature. It needs a hand from us. Well, very often people will say, nonsense, nature always takes care of itself. It's been around a long time. We're the optional bit on our planet. I don't go along with that. I think that in the world we're living in today, where nature is very fragmented and things are fast changing, nature can't take care of itself. At least not if we want a future that it can include us and, in fact, a future that we can look forward to. So for me, this is a garden planet. Last month in New York at the United Nations, the world leaders signed up to a new set of sustainable development goals, 17 of them, summarized by these little cartoon diagrams behind me. These goals collectively target poverty as the greatest challenge facing humanity. And as the successors to the earlier millennium development goals, I think of them as probably the closest thing that we humans have got to an agenda for the future and some ambitions about how we would like our planet to be. These are the only changes signed up to by practically every government on Earth. And I certainly don't disagree with that emphasis on poverty. But I think there's something uh, even more fundamental that's in the background which is relevant to practically all of those sustainable development goals. And that is the need to strike the right balance in the global garden so that photosynthesis, which leads to the production of food on the one hand, is balanced somehow in proportion to photosynthesis, which supports biodiversity and the rest of life, and the life support systems of our planet, renewing the air, giving us a living soil to work with, and making sure that fresh water continues to flow in the rivers. 
supporting ourselves and the five to ten million other species that we share planet Earth with. For me, it comes down to how we apportion the photosynthesis and productivity of our planet and how we recognize that that's our responsibility. I think that there's a moral imperative for restoring the damage that we've done to the ecology of the planet. But doing so is also in our own best interest. And on top of that, we know how to do it. The stakes are high, I think, sitting here today. And the quality of life and the future depends fundamentally on us getting these things right. And put simply, if we don't take care of plants in the world of the immediate future, we can't continue to enjoy their bounty, which includes thousands of medicines and other essential products that our daily lives are completely dependent upon. So we need to work hard to conserve and protect all the pieces of nature. We depend on the full complexity of Earth's systems. We are part of that web of life which is interconnected, and we need all of it. And I don't just mean that we should make sure that we protect wild plant species, which as a, I as a botanist am particularly enthusiastic about. I mean all of plant diversity, from the crops we depend upon for our food every day, through to those we prize as ornamentals in our gardens. And I think, as Alistair has pointed out, all of these are actually parts of our planetary life support system. We need to protect and treasure all of them. It's especially important, I think, to keep all of the genetic diversity we possibly can too, because genetic diversity gives rise to ad adaptability and the ability to cope with different conditions in the future. Or put more simply, it's going to turn out that the diversity and genetic diversity of plants is the key to our survival in a changing world. I saw all of those points reflected very nicely in this new strategy. You might be wondering, I hope not, what all this has to do with gardens, so I'm going to make it a little bit closer to gardens now. I think the gardeners are the perfect people to look after a small planet like the one we are living on. In a world where we're dominated by short-term thinking and immediate profit, gardens think and plan for the longer term, the long haul. For example, planting trees that people know they will never see grow to maturity. My favourite personal example of that is this avenue of giant redwoods at Ben Moore Botanic Garden, planted in 1863 by Piers Patrick. And what a bold vision it was to lay out an avenue like that when he in his own lifetime could never see them getting much past the small sapling stage. And it was for us to benefit today when we visit them. So I think that gardeners have a very deep sense of place. They have a connection with the soil with the seasons, and with growth. And those are things that are ever more important in our increasingly urbanised planet. As we become further from nature, the more those very skills and aspects of gardeners matter. And most importantly of all, of course, gardeners know how to grow plants. And that is the fundamental key to lightening the burden that we place on the planet 
repairing the damage that we've already done and making this literally a much greener world than it is today. Thanks for downloading this RHS Gardening podcast. Coming up, Stephen Blackmore continues his lecture on Gardening Planet Earth. But first, a bit more about previous lecture speakers. They include Met Office Chief Scientist Professor Julia Slingo, who spoke on gardening in a changing climate, and Dr Ken Thompson, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Sheffield, who spoke on biological invasions and what they can mean for gardens and gardeners. Videos of these lectures can be found at rhs.org.uk forward slash McLeod lecture. And if you'd like to hear more RHS gardening podcasts, please visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcasts. And now, back to the lecture. So I've told you why I think Earth is a garden, and I've told you why I think gardeners are so key to the solution. Coming on now to... What are organisations doing about that? How are they tapping into those special qualities? And I'm going to talk now by, by, start by talking a bit about the, the Royal Horticultural Society and repeating and showing you some of the things you've seen, hopefully through a slightly different lens. And as a long-standing member of the RHS, I've been really delighted by the changes of direction and the leadership the RHS has been showing in recent years. So Sue and her team can start blushing now. Actually, from up here, I can tell you they are. But maybe it's just the lighting effects of this warm glow that's making everybody in the audience look wonderfully um, happy and glowing. Really important changes. The Horticulture Matters, which I think was in one of uh, your slides, Alistair, represented an, an effort to draw together through the RHS many different partners and drew attention to what Sue referred to up top there in that text is a growing crisis that is threatening the economy, environment and food security. I think whoever I was wandering down the road outside, if somebody told me there was a crisis that was threatening those things, they would have my attention. I can't think of some other things that are more important and I would walk past saying, oh well, never mind about that. What I'm really worried about is something else. There isn't anything else. The issues we're concerned with and that this strategy goes to are the most important issues facing us in the world. That's only one of the wonderful things that the RHS has been up to. Here's another, which brings out the scale and importance of ornamental horticulture as a major industry in the UK. And again, the billions that are involved were touched on earlier. It is big business. It's not something secondary or unimportant. And I think that's been really well brought out through the RHS's recent work. And although we consider ourselves to be a nation of gardeners, we nevertheless think of gardening as quite a trivial activity. And when I was running the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, I would often be told, especially by members of the government in Scotland, that um, I must have the loveliest job in the world. Well, in fact, I did. But they pictured me kind of skipping through the flowers and enjoying the flower beds and without a care in my head. Whereas I thought I was the chief executive of a business turning over £15 million per annum. We miss what horticulture is about. And these reports, I think, have really made it fundamentally clear to everybody. I like the fact that going beyond that, in fact, the RHS has succeeded in setting out commitments from horticulture, but making asks of government. And government has responded through a regular process of engagement. There are meetings now to 
actually discuss. That's a huge step forward. For DEFRA to actually recognise that horticulture matters, is, is that's progress. I also appreciate how the RHS embraces the wider biodiversity in our gardens, again, as touched on earlier. Everything from pollinators to hedgehogs, and there's a real hedgehog craze in the country at the moment. And uh, I've not seen one recently. I'm, I'm ex I know we have them in our newly acquired garden in Yorkshire because I see the footprints and the dew on my lawn in the morning, but I haven't seen them yet. There's also a stronger focus on conservation. Again, Alistair mentioned the importance of keeping those varieties uh, of, of horticulture. And I, I very much enjoy reading the wildlife articles in the garden magazine. And again, I suspect a few years ago, um, they wouldn't have been there to the same extent. And, and they're doing well. I, for one, am learning quite a bit about insects now, which I've always wanted to find out more about. I think it's great. But best of all, to my mind, is this absolutely brilliant campaign, Greying Green Britain which I think reminds us all that whether you've got a large or a small garden, if you've got one at all, of course, gardens add up to a sizably large area of territory in the UK. As I was to mention, 25% of urban London. What I really like about reports and documents that the RHS has produced like this is that they're not just telling people that they ought not to pave over their front gardens. They're showing how to do it properly. So I think that grey and green Britain can be seen as a kind of microcosm of what the world needs everywhere, in every city that you might visit, with half of people already living in cities. And, and again, as Alistair touched on, that proportion of us that live in cities is growing. And as climate change is bringing with us with it, increasingly uncertain weather, extreme weather conditions, with issues like flooding and drainage coming to the fore. How we plant and design our urban landscapes for the future is going to be critically important. And we all know, of course, I think, in this audience, that not only can gardens, street trees, indoor trees, green walls, green roofs make a big difference to cooling the air, soaking up pollution, there are also the health benefits that were touched on to the inhabitants. One study I read recently based on research in Tokyo, the world's biggest of the so-called megacities, showed an increase in life expectancy for those people in Tokyo who had access to urban green space and could visit a park and garden. They're living longer than those who cannot. Little wonder that property prices tend to be higher if you've got a nice garden on your doorstep. There's good reasons for these things. But in fact, cities around the world are waking up to the importance of urban green space and planting as a solution to many of the challenges of the future, using a so-called ecosystem-based approach to adapting to climate change. So this really is, I think, a piece of work which stands right up there with the best you'll find anywhere in the world. And I'm going to come on now to international activities and organisations, because the good news is that while the RHS has been evolving its role and missions, facing up to those great challenges of our times, so have botanic gardens around the world. 
And I know this because it's my privilege to chair the board of Botanic Gardens Conservation International, a network of 500 paying member botanic gardens in more than 100 countries around the world. And still plenty of gaps to fill in, and we are working on that. But botanic gardens are a major force internationally. What BTCI does is a bit like what I've shown you the RHS is doing in part, in that it's providing practical guidance and know-how, policy documents, leadership, support to the global community of botanic gardens, but also to governments around the world and to the UN convention bodies focused particularly on conservation and on the global status of plants. And I'm actually very pleased that Paul Smith, who's the Secretary General of BGCI, is here this evening, having formerly been highly successful at the Millennium Seed Bank, and he's sitting next to his predecessor at BGCI, Sarah Oldfield, who moved this organisation into such a strong position. I'm very glad to see you both here today. I'm going to illustrate a bit of the work that Botanic Gardens Conservation International does around the world in the next few slides. And I'm going to do it with some highly selective examples, because most of them come from the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, which is at least a place I've been to. And others come from China and Asia and some of the other places I've been fortunate to visit. But I could pick projects from most botanic gardens to fit the same kinds of categories. For a start, and very much as the RHS does, many botanic gardens in recent years have broadened out their educational offer and their public engagement to include helping people know how to grow their own food, often combined with training the horticulturists of the future. When I joined RBG in 1999, I think it's fair to say that I never thought I would see carrots and cabbages growing in our garden. And people would have been shocked if I'd suggested that we even allowed that to happen. There would have been an outcry. But in fact, when we began... Oh, I realise I've got the wrong picture up, haven't I? It's moved on. When we began this ed edible gardening project, as we called it, with the support of the players of the People's Postcode Lottery and working together with the Scottish Allotments Association, I think it's one of the best things we've ever done. And the pool of volunteers it's brought in, a number of participants, is really exciting. But many botanic gardens are doing that. Um, fabulous programme in Chicago, which reaches out to some of the poorest people in that large city. Another new trend in botanic gardens in recent years has been to try to take care of those plants that are most threatened in the wild in the area of that botanic garden. Very common sense idea and a sensible thing to do. Uh, now very, very widely adopted in most countries in Europe. And at Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, for example, we have something like 60 species of threatened plants from Scotland in cultivation in the garden. And a growing number of those are being put back to former sites in the wild, like this um, rare fern, Woodsia ilvensis, which um, our horticulturalists grew several thousand plants from the last five populations known in the wild in the UK and are restoring them back to those places. When I mention that figure of 60 to people in Scotland, most people are horrified to realise that there are 60 threatened plant species in Scotland. And I then have to point out to them that I was only telling them about the ones we've got in cultivation. There are still quite a lot more that aren't in cultivation in any botanic garden. But if each garden around the world takes responsibility locally for threatened plants, then that adds up to something impressive.
Of course, botanic gardens also have significant international collections. And this is a, not a great photograph of the Chilean hillside at Ben Moore Botanic Garden. I've photographed this numerous times, but I still haven't got a photograph that gives you the feeling of standing there. It might not look at all like a Chilean forest yet, but there are several hundred monkey puzzle trees there. And they have as much genetic diversity in the samples that have been planted at Ben Moore as exists in Chile in the wild. They've been carefully gathered together. They're individually known and understood. They're grown together with about a dozen species of other plants from the forests of Chile. And they represent a resource that has the potential to be used in restoration back into the wild. It's incredible to think that half of the world's conifers are now threatened in the wild. That's about 350 species. They're just too good for cutting up and making into timber. So wherever they are, conifers are in trouble. And this project forms part of an international conifer conservation project that has 120 safe sites in the UK, some of them botanic gardens, but some of them privately owned gardens and pieces of land. And I mention this to show that the conservation work, which is part of an international program, can be distributed across gardens of all sizes and shapes and locations. And those kinds of collections are hugely important, both in the country where the trees come from and internationally, in an age when we're being uh, hit by so many new pests and diseases. And we've already seen the impact of Dutch elm disease. We're currently facing ash dieback. And as Asta said, more of those will be coming. So it makes sense to have the distributed around the world backup collections of plant diversity. And increasingly, botanic gardens are not just keeping one or two species and putting them back into the wild, but increasingly involved in whole-scale restoration ecology, repairing some of the world's most severely degraded landscapes. My favorite example is in Hong Kong, where I went to school. Um, in the 1960s, my family and I would love to go for picnics at this place, which is Hong Kong's highest mountain, Taimou Shan. When we went there, we'd sit looking out over old abandoned tea terraces, and obviously terraced landscape, with one or two trees, but not much else. But after an absence of forests for several centuries, they're coming back now through the work of Gunter Fischer and his team at the Kaduri Farm and Botanic Garden. This is an experimental series of plots that Gunter has established, and in much the same way that the RHS conducts experiments and trials to see what will grow best in our gardens, what Gunter is doing here is finding out what fertilizer treatments, what protection from wind and feral cows, believe it or not, what will work best to re-establish a subtropical forest. Very kindred kinds of research, I think. And the skills that they're applying at Kadori Farm Botanic Garden are the mainstream skills of horticulture, standard practices like seed collection, the nursery work, planting those trees out into the wild. What is not standard, I would say, is the vision of restoring a biodiversity-rich subtropical forest centuries after the land was first cleared for agriculture and then that ended when the soils were exhausted. To me, that really is gardening the planet. And the example here 
is um, a tropical, subtropical oak, Cyclobalanopsis blakei, which I helped collecting some of the acorns for. And uh, Hong Kong is fortunate to have tiny pockets of protected forest where there are seed trees that can be found for this work. And it goes ahead incredibly rapidly and very, very successfully, doing something which many people there would have thought was completely impossible. Another role of botanic gardens, of course, is to educate and inspire. And elsewhere in Asia, Singapore, I think, has what I regard as the world's best permanent plant spectacle, the gardens by the bay. It's not just a spectacular place, however, and I hope some of you have been lucky enough to visit it. There's an incredible collection of plants there inside the glass houses and also on these artificial tree structures. But inside those, uh, the glass houses, there are also um, world-class exhibitions dealing with difficult subjects of global change, and in particular with a take-home message of what individuals can do about them. I don't think the exhibitions inside this site are matched yet by anything we have in the UK. The only place I've seen that comes close is the California Academy of Sciences. So they really are leading the way, not just in wow factor, but in the educational message built in beneath. Another botanic garden I visited in China, Guangxi, you can get mobbed by kids in Chinese gardens. It's great fun. But an important message I want to leave with you is take heart. Amazing things are happening in the gardens of the world. And actually that's why I'm hoping that the RHS and BGCI can team up and work closely together in the future. We've got so many goals in common and ambitions and this is the time for us to, to do that. So we're going to be following up and talking about how we can bring those two organisations closer together to amplify and promote the themes and common messages we have. I'm going to come on to the final part of my talk now, which is what each of us can do. Looking at the pace and change, the sheer scale of what's going on in the world, it's often completely overwhelming. It's very easy to feel that we're individually powerless and it's easy to be uncertain what we could do that might be worthwhile in the face of the great challenges we have. And as we rush from one place to another, for me, I'm always rushing through King's Cross, which is how come I can photograph that in a blur. It's a place I seem to arrive in about once a week recently. But we often forget that our individual impacts add up. As with the White Cliffs of Dover, it's our vast numbers that can make the difference. So at the same time as 7 billion is the problem, 7 billion individually and collectively can be the problem, uh, can be the solution, rather, provided we take responsibility for the global garden. And I'm going to show you a few ways that we can do that. And there are very, very many, so they don't all fit in. So I'm narrowing it down to things which do connect most specifically with gardens, less with our energy consumption or other aspects of our daily lives. I really think that one of the best things we can do in our gardens is choose peat-free compost. It's an easy step to take, even though it costs a couple of pence extra. And I was thinking at this point that I might show you a picture of some bags of peat-free compost that I bought recently. But 
What's better than a picture of a peat-free compost bag is a picture of a sphagnum bog that I took in Scotland a year or two ago. The gain is enormous by not using peat. Peatlands are one of the most important carbon sinks, especially in high-latitude places like the British Isles. We need that carbon to stay in the ground. But look what's going on. That is sphagnum moss at work. The bubbles are oxygen, we need it, the carbon is going into that peat bog and it will not decay. So I love that image as the real reason why we should be choosing peat free. We should also of course be reducing the input of chemicals into our gardens. Everything from slug pellets to weed killers. Dig them up, get on your hands and knees, you don't need chemicals. Go organic if you possibly can. The wildlife that shares your garden with you will thank you for that. And I think what we should see is we should be clever when we're shopping. Retail businesses do respond to their customers, sometimes a little bit too slowly, but if we state what our preferences are and shop accordingly, we can really have a very powerful effect. I've been really thrilled to find that I can't get plastic bags in England anymore. We've got ahead in Scotland on that one. But it's seriously reduced the impact of waste plastic in a very short period of time. And that has a profound effect on the marine environment. I'm thinking of those faraway places in the Seychelles and the Indian Ocean. But those things I've just spoken about are reducing our impact and preventing our damage. Actually, I think the opposite side is much bigger. The what can we do that has a positive benefit. If we're lucky enough to have even the smallest of gardens, there are things we can do. And again, as the examples from the RHS have shown, choosing plants that can support pollinators and other wildlife. Making at least a little bit of space for nature in our gardens. I know that bird feeding, bird nesting is a national craze in Britain, which is wonderful. But bug hotels are catching on, growing plants that are particularly good as pollinators, allowing weedy patches to remain, having wildlife corners, making holes into your fences so the hedgehogs can get through. All of those things which reflect a knowledge that our own small patch of garden is a part of something bigger. Back to the point emphasised again, and perhaps a quarter of urban Greater London. It's really hard to beat the advice that's there in Greening Grey Britain. I think it's a great example leading on to individual choice. It does help that we've been shown through those reports how to avoid having a concrete desert in the front of our house. I call it concrete desert because I don't like the idea of concrete jungles. Jungles are rich and full of biodiversity and life. What people are doing to their front gardens is actually they're making deserts. But it really isn't necessary when you see that it is possible to have both your car and plants. And I think that practical know-how is being adopted. I've seen one or two people finally, close to home for me, going in the opposite direction and responding where they had paved over, they're putting the plants back in. I think there's a campaign that will grow and grow. 
course, vegetables. There's this huge trend towards growing our own food. After all, it's very much better than any that you can possibly buy. We all think that and feel it, but actually I think it's true. But people do need advice on how to do it, and many of the gardening organizations and gardeners have been leading the way and showing um, people how to grow their own. I think there's been a, a younger generation than myself who didn't find out in childhood how to grow things in the garden and we need to work hard to make sure they catch up because as soon as they get started of course they have as much fun as any of us ever did. I've been very impressed in terms of some of the voluntary projects there are around the country that are for example saving seeds and sharing them and making sure that interesting varieties don't die out and keeping that genetic diversity. I also think it's good to encourage people to grow something different not just for variety, which is beneficial in itself, but also because we're growing in gardens against this background of change, and some things will work better than others in the future. Again, there's some brilliant guidance out there. I particularly like James Wong's one-man mission to make us grow all sorts of things that people wouldn't have given garden space to in the past. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I also want to emphasize how important it is to plant more trees. I'm obsessed with this. I think people should go for the biggest tree or trees they can possibly fit into whatever space they have. You might not be able to match this fine oak tree at New Hales, but I'm concerned to see that so many of the trees we see planted in towns today are those pencil-thin, fastigiate varieties, which have their place, of course. They're great if you have only a tiny garden and if you've only got room for a container-grown apple, for example. Always have that rather than trying to live without your own apple tree. But I think we've got an issue, and to me it's a bit like the size zero issue in the fashion industry. Um, Far too many skinny trees are being planted. And I think we should speak out about that and do something about it. We need a campaign for real trees, I think. Um, Alice has already showed this picture, which I had borrowed from the Forestry Commission. I love it as an example of if an engineer invented a device that could do all of these things, what would, it, what would they come up with? A carbon store, a rainwater deflector, a cooling zone, a flood management system self-anchoring dynamic foundations. You know, it's pretty impressive. So in the same way that sphagnum moss is hard at work, trees are also hard at work. If you don't have room for a tree, never mind, I suppose I'll, I'll let that pass. But what you need to do then, even if you have no garden of your own, is get on the waiting list for an allotment. If your name isn't down, why not? Do it today. But also, you can join the RHS, your local garden, your local arboretum. Support those organisations. Your support will make a big difference. And if you can, once you've signed up as a member, go a bit further and become a volunteer. I'm sure wherever you are, they'll need you. And finally, I think in that little list of personal things to do, spread the word, be an advocate for plants. Remind everybody how the world really works, because I think people have forgotten. So I believe firmly that the future we want starts with us and our actions. There's a role for government, of course, especially in defining the legislation and commitments to various global targets. And especially governments get good at that when we as voters push them along, demanding action at the local and global levels. 
There's the Climate Change Conference coming up in Paris starting on the 30th of November. That represents a potential turning point for humanity when we could begin to get a grip on what's happening to planet Earth. I love the fact that the posters for that conference place emphasis not on the governments of the world must do their best, but on we need to act. I think they're right. At the moment, prior to this conference, countries have reported their pledges and commitments to climate change targets and carbon dioxide reduction in particular. But actually, the much talked about goal of keeping the global temperature down below two degrees is not yet within our grasp. If you add up everything that countries are committed to, it isn't enough. And nations will need to go further than that if we're going to be able to, to achieve that target. And that target of two degrees represents the possibility of having a planet quite like the one we live on today. Okay, with more extreme weather that we're already experiencing, but still a fundamentally familiar world. But the quickest win, the part that is missing, that would in fact close the gap between current government commitments and where we need to be, is planting trees everywhere. Restoration of existing forests, creating new ones, greening up our cities and doing that as much as possible. And making certain that soils contain as much carbon as they can, which is best done through permaculture approaches. We could close that gap with reforestation and soil. And I think we need to make that point. So I'm going to draw to a close now and um, give you my conclusion. I've tried to fit a whole planet and three billion years of life into a short talk, which of course can't be done. But I hope that I've got you thinking positively about how we might face up to the future challenges. And in particular, I hope you'll go home thinking about your own garden as a microcosm of the planet at this point in its time and its history. And personally commit to being an agent for change and making a better future. I'm going to leave you with some more words from Patrick Geddes. This is from a lecture he gave in 1915, a century ago, and I just love it. By leaves we live. Some people have strange ideas that they live by money. They think energy is created by the circulation of coins, whereas the world is mainly a vast leaf colony, growing on and forming a leafy soil, not a mere mineral mass. And we live not by the jingling of our coins, but the fullness of our harvests. Well, we've known that for a hundred years. There's nothing new that I've told you this afternoon. We know what to do. Now I think we should get on with it. And now I'll try to face up to your challenging questions. But thank you for your attention. I realised I'd forgotten to say one thing. The reason I brought up this is, in my opinion, that's the best ever single issue of the Garden magazine. Came through my doorpost the other day. Um, better written than the talk I've just given you with most of the same things already in there, including the, uh, the campaign for real trees getting started. Happy to answer any questions. Yes. I should probably have said happy to try to answer any questions. There's a subtle difference. <laughs>
thank you. That was a fascinating talk. Um, you began your talk by articulating a dichotomy between um, food production and ecosystem services, and you ended it with a really hopeful message about how we can um, progress our relationship with, with um, the ecosystem through things like permaculture. I was hoping you could expand on that and maybe talk about um, uh, how we could champion progressive relationships with uh, the environment such as permaculture, agroecology, and community-supported uh, agriculture, and if that's something that we uh, or you as a, as a horticultural institution might be focusing on in the future. Yes, thank you. I think that, um, I think in particular, I mean, we think of agriculture as something, if you live in a city, I have done most of my life, you think of agriculture as the stuff that happens over there in the countryside. And actually, I was reading recently about city planning in Chicago 100 years ago when they decided that Chicago was going to be definitely not at all green in the middle because it was dependent on food coming in from the countryside. It's wonderful to see that they're doing the exact opposite now in Chicago and growing more and more in the city centre. But, of course, in a way there are two parts to the land where we could grow things. There's the cities and there's the countryside. I know I'm being a bit simple there. But, first of all, I think it's hugely impressive that there are so many city-based um, and voluntary-based initiatives to get people growing plants now. My son lives in Bristol, so I spend a lot of time in Bristol. It's currently European green capital, but it's a, it's a city where incredible things are being done at that local community level of people converting small patches of land into, um, into communal gardens and getting people growing vegetables in some of the most <laughs> unlikely places. And that's being repeated in cities around the world. Uh, in, in New York a couple of years ago, visiting Brooklyn Botanic Garden, I saw that there's a craze for keeping bees on your rooftop in, in, in Brooklyn. You wouldn't necessarily think that you could produce honey in Brooklyn, but you can, and it's very good. I tried it. And many of those rooftops have green gardens on them. So there's a huge push towards making urban environments, places that are for food production as well as for everything else, which I think we overlooked in that part of human history that was the rush to build the denser city or the ever higher city. And architects now are getting into this in big ways with some very exciting and creative ideas and designs. But our cities of the future should not look like our cities of the past. They should be green and they should be growing our food. The other part, I think, turning to um, farmland in a more traditional sense or the countryside, I, I'm not a good person to speak on that subject. I don't know enough about it, but I'm intensely worried by some of the things that I see. Um, on my train journey from Edinburgh today, for example, I passed several fields full of solar panels. And personally, I love solar panels more than anybody else I've ever met. They're brilliant, but they should be on rooftops and on brownfield sites. They should not be in fields where they're going now. I put this down to a, I hope, short-term aberration where in our rush to get solar going at all, that some of them have been put in slightly crazy places. We're going to need every inch of that soil for food production and balanced with biodiversity and ecosystem services. When I moved to Scotland in 1999 to go to Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, 
um, and our institution was funded through the Scottish equivalent to DEFRA. The official position at that time, in 99, was that agriculture was of less importance in Scotland than it had been in the past. We were a largely historical country, but we weren't going to be in the future. We were going to be doing something else. I don't, it was never specified quite what. I'm very pleased to say that now, it turns out, that agriculture is going to be critically important to the future of Scotland. And of course, as it is to the entire planet. But quite how we move our mainstream agricultural systems forward, I, I really don't know. There are many exciting and scientific possibilities and technologies. I'm not really the expert to answer on that, though. Thank you, for, thank you very much for enlightening us so much. Uh, on the subject of solar panels in fields, um, I was recently in northern Germany and was surprised to see thousands of hectares of maize grown for electricity generation. And um, we have oilseed rape being grown to put in our petrol tanks at the moment. Uh, do you approve of this in the medium term? Job that the Steve Blackmore stamp of approval isn't required for anything in the planet because I wouldn't really, I don't know. I mean, it strikes me that um, there's a more urgent need for that maize, for example, to be eaten than to be used in the biofuel. On the other hand, there must be, and I think are some contexts around the world where, where biofuels make a certain amount of, of sense. I can't see that they're going to last very long in Britain because I think they're going to get squeezed out by the much more direct need for growing food. Of course, I could be mistaken about that. What I think we're going through at the moment, though, is a creative period in human history of trying many different things. And I think we'll settle down to realising that some of those are not as sensible as they might have, have seemed long term. Um, I know there's been a discussion recently, for example, about biomass boilers, and I've personally been responsible for buying two of those to put in in Edinburgh and at Doik Botanic Garden. And uh, at the time, I slightly worried about the fact that burning wood as a fuel is not as good as something truly renewable. And I'm really pleased, actually, that Doik is now totally powered by hydropower, We've got, we don't have to use the biomass boiler anymore. It was the first house in Scotland that had electricity from hydropower many years ago, and it's back on hydro. But maybe we need to be experimenting with some of those things short term, but I think we haven't really prioritised and sorted out the right places for doing each of them yet. Hello. Um, I've got a query about the use of peat. I still feel that uh, there are a lot of people who do not use peat-free compost and I think that's a very important aspect of gardening now. Do you think that the word about using peat-free compost should be spread more and publicised more? Because I, I, I've heard from a garden centre, somebody in the, working in the garden centre actually said that people feel peat-free peat compost are um, inferior. So I think there's a lot of um, misinformation and I think that's a very, very important thing that all gardeners should do. And also, um, when you buy things from garden centres, how do you know if they're not using a, a, a peat-based compost to grow their plants in? Because so much, so many plants are bought now, how can that be changed? 
I think that last point is a really difficult one because whilst the bag of compost might tell you what it's got inside it and you perhaps have to just take that as what it says, you're right, when you're buying the plants themselves, it's harder to tell. I must admit that um, I always find it hard to judge what public awareness of that kind of issue still is because I think, you know, for those of us who've perhaps cared about that kind of issue for a long time, it, it seems so incredibly obvious. What I do think is surprising to me, though, is it's still quite hard to find the peat-free compost in a lot of garden centres. And um, buying some in Yorkshire recently, I, I, I found some in tiny little bags in one garden centre. The next place I called at, fortunately, I had a choice of several brands, and they had plenty. Um, it was, as I said, a few pence more expensive than the alternative they had, but, but, but definitely worth it. But I think that one of the problems in campaigns like that is really it's quite hard to get across the message of quite why it is damaging. I think so many of us grew up using peat-based composts and thinking, you know, if you're mixing some compost, what do you expect to find in it? It's going to have peat. And it does work wonderfully well. And I know horticulturists in Edinburgh would tell me that um, some of the plants we most like to grow there are really difficult to get into alternatives, um, loving our, our kind of acid-based plants. I think all these campaigns, you have to just keep plugging away at it for a very, very long time. And, um, and, and again, it's in that sense that I mean, in a way, we have to all, I think, be advocates for plants. You can't have... Um, I was going to say you can't have sustainable peat consumption. Actually, there is a product from Sweden that claims to be sustainably harvested, and I really don't know if it is or not, but they claim they're taking only a small amount off the top of a very active growing peat bog. So, so perhaps not completely impossible, but it still seems a fairly pointless and damaging exercise to me. The stuff is better off as part of a healthy ecosystem. I think it's been wonderful that in Scotland having had a history which involved digging trenches to drain those useless bits of ground that weren't doing anything, they were just peat bogs, you know, so let's drain that and get rid of it as fast as we can. That actually those channels of drainage are being closed off and places in the flow country and elsewhere turn back into peat bogs as we slowly come to understand what was actually happening in those places that aren't suitable for agriculture. It's great that they're not suitable for that. And they're much better off when we don't come and dig trenches in them. Very good talk, Steve. Um, one of the things I notice when I'm trying to educate people about plants is that there are very few young people or people of university age showing an interest specifically in botany or horticulture. Yet when I talk to primary school children, they're all thrilled and fascinated. They see plants in the computer games they play. They can recognize sugarcane because it's on Minecraft and things like this. But we seem to lose those young children and, and, and lose their interest and engagement before they've got to the end of secondary school. Do you see some way that we can keep hold of that, that thrill and interest that young people have? I don't know. I think this is one of the greatest challenges. 
Personally, when I was growing up, and I was one of those kids captivated by nature right from a very, very early age, and most of my education was designed to beat that out of me because one day I'd have to have a proper job. But um, and sometimes I think that hasn't changed very much. I think people are not aware that there are careers. That's why one part of that kind of the Grow campaign has been so good in just opening eyes to the fact that um, you can, in fact, I did, in fact, get a job. Um, but I, I really don't know that I understand this. My fundamental belief would be that just as many children are arriving into the world today who care about plants as ever did. I think that that hasn't fundamentally changed. And I do think that you're right that we're losing them at some point um, when it's kind of crowded out. But it really doesn't help that you can't go to a university anymore and sign up for a degree in botany. And I do think a part of it may be that if there's no apparent degree or career or anything ahead of you, um, then that in itself is a problem. And we were discussing earlier, since I, when I went to Reading University as an undergraduate, I could pick to either specialise in botany, the general degree, or I could have done horticultural botany, if I wanted to go in that direction, or agricultural botany, three distinct degree programmes with a fair degree of overlap, whereas I couldn't go at all now. But actually, even when I was going to university, my dear mum told me, bless her, that um, I shouldn't do botany at university, I should do zoology, because botany wasn't a real subject, and at least one day I could be a zookeeper. <laughs> and I would have loved to have been a zookeeper, it's a quite good job, but actually <laughs> I stuck with what I really wanted to do. Um, I don't know, I think it might be the most important thing we've got to do. The only bit of good news I could give you is that I've travelled a lot to China and I'm back in China in two weeks' time and I think they're doing better than us currently at inspiring their young kids to get excited about plants. I think the rocket project has got to be great. Um, but again, I think as with all of these things, we've just got to keep going at it. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, thank, thank you very much. I think that's been an amazing talk. One of the And I, I, I do think that evidence-based solutions to problems are very, very and critical and important. But I think what, what horticulture does, as well as it brings in the art and the emotion, and you can know as many facts um, and many figures that you want, but often to make behavioural change, you need emotive um, responses. I always use the example of the number of nurses Nothing against nurses, so but the number of nurses that stand outside hospitals and smoke, yet they know the intricate details of um, what that does to them. And how did they try to reduce um, smoking in the past? Well, they, they introduced them to people that were dying. And, and I think we need to use the evidence and make sure it is solid evidence, but we also need to use the, uh, some of the elements, and again, genius by... The, the former people of the, uh, who sort of set up the RHS, the science, the art, and the practice of horticulture, because it is a creative... Horticultural science is very creative. Um, one of the other things that I, I wanted to just make clear, because this has happened in, in the past, and sometimes it is... It's quite embarrassing. So um, 
much, much as we would like to take um, credit for an industry initiative, it's really important that everyone in this room understands that horticultural matters and the ornamental roundtable is the industry coming together, it is not the RHS. And I can't stress how important that is. For a long time, the industry has been seen as fragmented, and for the first time, it is working together for the good of the whole of horticulture. And often, comments like that will deem and cause problems. And really don't want that to happen because, you know, a number of organisations, NFU, HTA, Bali, RHS, are sitting round a table creating the asks and asking government to help, but also doing things for themselves. And that is so important. The other thing is, how many of you have pledged or made a promise for greening Grey Britain? I know you may already have gardens. So could I please ask, I'm just going to plant a really lovely candy floss tree, the Thursidophyllum, which actually only grows two metres and it smells of candy floss, it's gorgeous. This weekend, that'll be my tree. Um, but you can continue to plant things because one by one, everything matters and what we do matters. And even in this room, if we make a difference, most of you will be doing it anyway. But please go on our website and pledge. We've got a good number of people. Sorry, make a promise. We started off with pledge. Right, okay. Another part of this lecture before we finish is the bit that I really like, and that's about um, supporting but also congratulating people that I hope one day will take um, a crucial role within horticultural science. And this is around giving the Mars Christian Trust um, award. So if I could um, ask Sarah Oldfield to come up and introduce the Mars Christian Trust and then we'll present the award. Thank you very much Alistair. I'm absolutely delighted to be here this afternoon celebrating horticultural science and the leadership role of the RHS. And I'm particularly thrilled to be uh, representing the Marsh Christian Trust, who've asked me to present the Marsh Horticultural Science Awards. The Marsh Christian Trust was set up by Brian Marsh in 1981, and each year gives out 75 awards to exceptional people doing exceptional things in all different walks of society and the partnership between the RHS and the uh, Marsh, Marsh Christian Trust dates back to 2005. So it's a great pleasure this afternoon to be able to present the awards for horticultural science to two exceptional people doing exceptional things in the early stages of their careers and I look forward to hearing more about them and presenting the awards. So, again, horticulture does matter and it's important that we support um, horticultural scientists um, in the world of horticulture but in the conservation. I mean, Sarah Oldfield's had a career 
an international plant conservation career spanning over 30 years, and she's now just speaking to her today um, after leaving BGCI, doing a whole bunch of amazing consultancy work, um, choosing things that you want to do um, to make a difference. And I hope that these people also go on um, to do that. What I'm going to do is explain some of the work. Now, the winner of um, the Marsh uh, Christian Trust Award for Horticulture is um, Maria Christodoulou. Now, she mixed technology, often sometimes a bit threatening in relation to botany, because she created... um, she used the technology of the, um, the number plate recognition system to identify and weedle out the thousands of apple varieties um, that we have in this country, which we all enjoy. And she managed to get um, a success rate by scanning these um, apples using certain algorithms and that technology, getting a 78% ident success rate, which is as good as a person in relation to doing that. However, I would still argue you need the person to verify that. Um, But I would do that because I'm a trained botanist. (laughs) Um, But this just shows, you know, the ingenuity of um, having um, technology and embracing that in relation to identification. And it matters to understand which variety is good because of the testing elements. So if I could ask um, Maria to come up and, and receive her award please. Thanks. Um, Maria studied at um, Reading University and one of the supervisors is just sat over there, Alistair Cullum, who supported that, um, who also was my lecturer, um, which is um, great fun. So continuing to inspire people to do great science. Now, the highly commended award went to Thomas Passer, who um, also linked to Reading University, but also East Smalling Research Institute. And he looked at um, population genetics and epidemiology, so looking at the understanding of the diseases and uh, their cycles, on uh, effects of Venturia inequalis, which is the apple scab, which causes deformed fruits. Um, It's a major problem in orchards, and what his, his work was looking at was how you can use mixed genotypes and mixed orchards to reduce reduce those issues and to create some understanding that biology of um, the pathogens so that we could look at managing those areas. So Thomas, could you please come up for your award? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sarah, on that. Um, Right, well, I think that that heads for drinks and canapes. Please read the posters. There's two other things. The amazing new building is over there with what it's got in in there and what what the elements are. 
Um, there are going to be some amazing gardens around that. And alongside you know, all these other key investment projects is the really exciting news um, last week about getting the fifth garden for the RHS, um, which is at Bridgewater, up in my home territory. Um, so, yeah, you'll get to see my mum more. Um, um, who probably want me to solve her computer problems, but um, which is in Salford at Bridgewater. It's an amazing garden. It's a blank canvas with some great history, and uh, we're all really excited uh, about that venture. So thank you very much for coming along and sharing what I feel is a really exciting time for UK horticulture and for the RHS, and please enjoy and mingle. Um, thank you very much. you enjoyed the lecture. If you'd like to know more about the lecture's namesake, Professor John McLeod, the former chairman of the RHS Scientific Committee and a powerful advocate for horticultural science, please go to rhs.org.uk forward slash McLeod lecture. And to find out more about our fortnightly RHS gardening podcasts, go to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.